talk to every source you can to make sure you really are being inclusive of every qualified candidate, then you're going to actually make the most informed decision. You're going to say whether you choose a, a man or a woman or an underrepresented minority or not, you're going to at least feel good that you've looked at the whole talent pool. And I'm really proud of the role that we've been playing in, in sort of spotlighting some of that talent. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, I'm speaking with Rebecca Thornton, head of Director Advisory Services at J.P. Morgan. Rebecca runs a team that looks for executive talent and helps match qualified candidates with open board seats. She has some great advice on how to get on a board and how to think about creating a well-rounded board for your business. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Rebecca, it's great to have you on our Women on the Move podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, Sam, I'm so excited to do this with you. Thank you so much for asking me to join. This is going to be a great topic, talking about boards and women on boards. And before we get into all of that good stuff, we just want to hear about you, as our listeners are very eager to learn more about our guests and their own career backgrounds. So let's start with your career background. You've been in executive recruiting, board governance, succession planning for many years. And just like to know, to start with, what inspired you to get into those fields? Oh, it's a great question. It, it funny enough goes back to my teenage years. My parents were both bankers, funny enough. Didn't imagine I was going to end up in a financial institution, I have to admit, but here I am. And I remember hearing about executive search and how it was sort of the people side of business. I thought, huh, I think that's my speed. I'm going to check that out. And so I took internships. I just really loved the research aspects of it. And I loved the people aspects of it. I loved the project aspects of it. And as we'll discuss here, I landed in the right place at the right time. I'm really curious, how does technology change your job over the years? Has it made it easier to find people, identify them and their skills? It's dramatically different. So when I got into this business in the late 90s, we had a, a librarian on staff. There was a paper directory library on the floor of our both search firms, actually. Even, even the latter one I joined still had a librarian. And you'd go in and you'd go through things like the you know most powerful people in business. And you'd go to the 1980s version of you know whatever the equivalent of the Fortune 500 was back then. Everything was paper, everything. And then as email and, and the digitization of a lot of those directories came online, it did become a lot easier to find people. But then with LinkedIn and everything else, today is just, it's a completely different world. That is, that is so amazing. And now the tools at your fingertips, at your own desk 24 seven. Has it also made it easier for individuals to be more proactive about their own careers because they can find more of the jobs too with online listings? I think absolutely that's true. And I'll start with the executive roles and just jobs in general. I think LinkedIn and Indeed and all of the job posting that has occurred since the digitization of of all of this stuff has made people's ability to be upwardly mobile much, much, much better. But I'll say on the board side, sort of cynically, I remember 10 or 15 years ago when LinkedIn first hit the scene, us going, well, we'll never go on LinkedIn looking for board people. There's no way that that's going to be a resource 
course. Well, guess what? It completely is. One of the many advices that we give to people is, you know, that your LinkedIn should have presence, that you're a board director or an aspiring board director. And, you know, many, many, many companies now look to LinkedIn as a source for talent for boards and executive roles. So again, another way we've come a long way and I'm eating crow with, you know, the cynicism that I had 15 years ago about this. I'm on LinkedIn many times a day. So there you go. I love the democratic nature of this. This is really helping kind of both sides. So let's talk about the current group that you run at JPMorgan Chase called Director Advisory Services. What's the mission of the group and how do you work with clients? The group was formed in 2016 by Jamie Dimon and some of our senior bankers who were increasingly being contacted as sources on board searches. And Jamie knew who he knew and the banker down the hall knew who she knew, but there was no real central clearinghouse for all the great talent our bankers knew to be board interested. And on the other side, we had clients coming to us saying, we need an audit chair. Do you know anybody with emerging markets experience? It'd be great if they were also diverse. We now had that central clearinghouse to create a much more robust and I think a much more responsive list of candidates. The group has been a very powerful and I think increasingly a bit of a secret weapon within JP Morgan in a way that we're serving clients in a pretty unique and I think powerful way. So to date, we've worked with over a thousand companies. It's just extraordinary to say that number out loud in a short period of time. And we now have a network of a couple thousand people. About 60% of our actively looking network are women and or underrepresented individuals. And we're having real impact. So it's come a long way since the you know bullet points that I know my predecessor and Jamie put together of, of how to put this in action. The marketplace has been extremely receptive. And I think some of that is items we'll talk about today on the emphasis and focus on board composition, on diversity on boards. But I'd like to think it's also because we've built something pretty meaningful. And tell us about the placements to date out of that database. So we've placed close to 70 people. About 80% are women and or underrepresented minorities. And we have many more to come. I expect that in a few short months, we'll be hitting 100, which is great, great news. That is amazing. Congratulations. As I know, it's a small team and we work together very closely. So it's lean and mean. You're getting the job. Lean and mean. (laughs) That's right, Sam. (laughs) That's right. You know, tell me about a time where maybe a client wanted to find a board director and really just didn't think they could find a woman or a person of color, and yet you brought to them a really compelling list. How are you opening people's eyes to the talent that's out there? It's such a great question, and it happens with such frequency that you know, I can't speak to one specific issue or, or event or, or project rather, but I will say that it doesn't happen this way as frequently, but I remember the first time it happened, we were working with a private equity firm. They were early in their kind of evolution to bringing in independent directors and while doing so wanted to make sure they were also bringing in as diverse a group of directors as they could. And I remember this guy who was a really great partner and a really good human. And he was like, I just can't believe the quality of candidates you're bringing to us. I had no idea there were so many qualified women. And he wasn't a bad guy, you know, but he just didn't, he'd never looked outside of his little nook and his little nook happened to be predominantly male and I think predominantly white male. And so once he saw it on the page, I think it flipped his mind. I think it it showed him that all you have to do is look. And if you create an open search and really open that aperture as wide as you can and talk to every source you can to make sure you really are being inclusive of every qualified candidate, then you're going to actually make the most informed decision. You're going to say whether you choose a a male
man or a woman or an underrepresented minority or not, you're going to at least feel good that you've looked at the whole talent pool. And I'm really proud of the role that we've been playing in, in sort of spotlighting some of that talent. That is so powerful. I think people, I mean, forever have really relied on their own networks and then their networks networks and felt like, well, that's it. They've scoured the earth. And yet to bring people names and backgrounds they never would have thought of just must be eye-opening for them to understand the full breadth of talent out there in all of its forms. So, you know, again, we're really proud of that whole effort. So I would love to talk with you in general about board searches and just being a board member. You've had years of experience before joining JP Morgan at various search firms, as you've mentioned, and you've placed more than 1,000 board and CEO you know, slots and candidates across range of industries and assignments, which is incredible. So let me ask you, when you're set to look for an executive and matching that person to a board, what do you look at? What do you look for and what's the process? The way we typically work is a banker or even a director in our network will reach out to us. We will talk to them a little bit about the company, their situation, their strategy, their criteria, their culture. And then we go into our network. We don't search. We only go into the network of now 4,000 candidates that are have opted in through, through J.P. Morgan relationships and we'll produce a long list. And at that point, the candidates won't know their names being kind of marketed to the company or to the marketplace, but know that they've, they've given J.P. Morgan the permission to do so. We only then go back to the candidate when the client has selected them for the short list. And then we make the connection and then we let the process play out. We hand the process over to the client to run. So the magic happens when we're in that kind of long, how do we develop our long list? And that's to your more recent question. It's art and science is the honest answer. The science is where they match the criteria. So you're looking for a qualified financial expert who can step into an audit chair role, who has emerging markets experience, would love it if they've also kind of had operations experience out of a consumer facing business. And this has to be a female or underrepresented person. So we go into our network and we slot out the people who meet the science. The art is, I think, where the special sauce is, because you have to make sure that beyond the paper that the person is going to fit. And that's where you really do need to understand a little bit of the culture of the organization. And I think where Director Advisory Services distinguishes itself in particular is in some of the creative thinking. So we don't just take the order that you need all of those things. We can step back and say, if it's Starbucks, you say, well, thinking about Starbucks as a business, I can appreciate that payments is going to be important. Platforms is going to be important. Maybe real estate is going to be important. Consumer behavior and digital marketing is going to be important. So the client may not have thought to say all those things because they're living in that world every day. But you step back and say, okay, I understand you said you want this, 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 and this, but I'm also going to say there's somebody really special over here who doesn't necessarily fit all of those things, but we think she's amazing and is going to bring maybe three of those five things, but also these other things you didn't mention. Or that sort of like undefinable special quality that we think is really going to resonate not only with your board, but with your stakeholders. And then when you put them in a room together and it's kismet and it works and the placement happens, it's like the best feeling in the world. So So there is no one way that we do this, but I will tell you that it is almost equal parts art and science all day long. And the art really is what makes the stick happen. But if the personality and fit isn't there, it won't stick. I love that. You're really describing what you started with around being motivated by the people strategy, you know, knowing that people are so important to run a business to get that match exactly right can be such a great business driver. 
when you think about leadership, what are the key traits that you keep seeing among leaders and you know, the, the few that really pop out consistently to you? There was a lot of talk decades ago about charisma and the importance of charisma and leadership. And I continue to think it's nice to see charisma, but right now I think it's much more about the humility and, and just being somebody who's grounded in the full stakeholder mentality and not just about kind of the ivory tower CEO kind of leadership top down. Increasingly, it's being one with the people and and having kind of the human touch a lot more on EQ these days than on IQ. But I would answer that question by saying it's different strokes for different folks, which means different boardrooms are going to prioritize different ways of how they characterize good leadership. From my perspective, the criteria or the characteristics that you need to be a board director are actually fairly different from what you would need to be a CEO or a C-suite executive. It is much more on the listening and human component than it is on, you know, can you drive results? I don't know that most board directors, in fact, in the thousand to probably 1500 board specifications I've seen in my life, I'm not sure I've ever seen drives results because that's not necessarily what the board is there to do. The board is there to you know, engage on strategy and uh, push the leadership team to be the best that they can be and making sure that they're all looking around corners, whether it's you know risk or reward or, or anything else. So I think today's leader is really about being kind of an authentic self, being empathetic to, to others and making sure that you're building a culture that is going to bring out the best in your employees. And the right board directors are going to map to that in whatever form is right for that organization. So Rebecca, we have seen an increase of women on boards in this country and globally, but it seems sort of plateaued. It's very hard to just keep making what I would call massive gains in the board placements of women. When do you think we're actually going to reach parity? You know, do you think 50% of women on boards is realistic? If so, when? And how do you really encourage companies who lag in this area to move faster? God, I hope 50% is realistic. I don't know if it will be my lifetime, if I'm honest. I really believe it's not about people's support for it. I genuinely think that we've crossed that threshold where boards are seeing the value of diverse voices in the room. But one, there's not vacancies on every board every year. It takes time with age being right now the current mechanism for board transition, 72 or 75 years of age for most boards. There just isn't as much turnover of those seats. That, I think, is why we're going to see it take perhaps decades to actually reach that number. I also think a lot of the discussion has always been on pipeline or trade-off. I, you know, Our board is made up of all C-suite executives. I don't want to reach lower in an organization just to find women to put on our board. We all look around, and JP Morgan, I think, is one of the very best examples of this. You actually don't really need to make those compromises. There are plenty of women in C-suite roles around the country. Now, that was less true 15 years ago. And so I think we're starting to see that as more and more women are in C-suite roles, you can't accept that as being the reason why you don't look and at least put that long list together to make sure women are represented. So I am as encouraged as I've ever been around the the discourse on this topic. Just think there are some practical reasons why it, it continues to sort of lag or take time or plateau, as you say. The good news is, is that I don't think there will ever be a, a board search done again where there's an entire slate of white men. Boards are evolved. 
And stakeholders just will not tolerate it. And I think as more and more disclosure, you just can't look your teams, your suppliers, your workforce in the eye and say, oh, yeah, no, we did a search and this person was the very best search. Well, you find out there was no search and this was, you know, a golf buddy of a CEO or, or something else. So those days are gone. I think all boards are going to take a real process and a serious process at that, hopefully activating networks like JP Morgan's to make sure it's as not, I don't mean diverse in the most obvious sense, but that they're seeking other networks. There's a diversity of network that will lead them to the best possible selection. Well, what about companies looking not only at people who've literally been CEOs, but who have been in the C-suite more generally, who've run businesses with major P&Ls or have some specific functional expertise? Are you seeing that aperture widening in terms of what boards are willing to look at in terms of expertise? Hugely. And that's why I'm encouraged. What used to be, and again, as recently as four years ago, I was in a board event, a gentleman on this panel with me said, we will not compromise on quality. This is a board of CEOs and there's no way, there's no room in this boardroom for anybody who's less than a CEO. So unless you can find me a female CEO, we're not going to consider them. Well, those days are long gone. And now we have more and more searches and projects coming to us. And certainly in my search firm days too, of the best available candidates. We're open to any C-suite or even next generation, you know, the up and comers who are in a you know, treasurer control role today, but are likely to be a CFO. We want to look at those too. We may not select them. They may not have the longer tenure judgment or maturity or what have you for us to actually select them, but we want to see them and we're going to meet them and we're going to make that judgment on the, again, the best available talent. So the days of going into that library and going through the Fortune 500 and selecting only the CEOs who weren't yet on four or five boards are very long gone. In fact, an interesting massive switch is that fewer and fewer sitting CEOs serve on boards. It's, you know, less than 50% these days. The good news is that if they're not serving, you know, there's there's other people in C-suites who, who will. And the really good news is there are a lot of women and underrepresented minorities in those other functions. And so it's it's a really good thing that they're opening that aperture and, and at least evaluating the talent. What about the challenge of people trying to get on their first boards? So I think we've heard from folks that getting on that first board is difficult because as you've described, Boards want people with board experience. So how do you break in and really overcome that hurdle on your first board seat? Yeah, it's such a great question and in such a catch-22. What I can say is do your day job really, really well. The better known you are within your organization, your industry, the more you're going to build brand for yourself. Just getting in the flow is being known for something and being visible and networking. About 70% of all board seats are sourced through relationships. So if that's the case, that means that it's not necessarily only your first degree, but second and third degree contacts, making them aware of your board interest. First and foremost, making sure your organization is supportive and what can they do to help network you, putting you on panels, putting a story together in an industry magazine or in a local paper, things like that to help you build brand and recognition is important. But nothing is more important than you being really good at what you do and being known as a thought leader in that particular area. And so the networking is a big piece of it. You know, there's a lot of organizations out there that directors' colleges and, and online courses 
ideas and things that you can take to advance your positioning as a board director. And that's something that brings you from a content perspective, enriches you, etc. I highly encourage folks to do it. It's not typically a criteria for a board seat, but making sure that you're continuing to educate yourself on what governance is and not just waiting to learn that on the fly. I'm a big proponent of the National Association of Corporate Directors, NACD, which has some terrific content and, and local events, chapters in most major cities, if not all major cities, for women, uh, women corporate directors and Athena Alliance. There's all kinds of really terrific organizations that will help you with your board bio and understanding what your value proposition is so that you're presenting yourself in your very best light. That is great. This is such concrete advice. You know, having your content, really understanding what it takes to be a board member, networking and putting yourself out there. What about the question of whether you should join nonprofit boards before you join a public company board? Is that valuable? I think it's valuable, but I'm always cautious that people don't look at it as a means to an end. I've never had that be a criteria in the 1500 some odd board searches I've been involved with. It is something that I think helps you understand governance. As a director, you understand that that governance model is vastly different for a secondary school or a soup kitchen than it is for a public company. And so if it is a mission you are passionate about and you show up and you are all in and you're taking leadership roles and you're helping transform that organization, there are other people in your community who serve on boards who notice that. That could lead to you being referred to a board opportunity, but I've never seen it be the reason that somebody is selected. I think being careful, one, about not getting yourself overboarded with nonprofits so you don't have the bandwidth for that corporate board when it comes calling and only align yourself with things that are actually authentic to who you are and how you show up. Thank you. That's really helpful. Are there particular skills right now that are in demand by boards, you know, really deep functional expertise that many are looking for? There are many. I would say a couple things. Financial expertise, ability to chair, serve, audit committee, that's since Sarbanes-Oxley continues to be probably one of our top one or two criteria. The number one tends to be CEO or P&L experience. So people who can be a thought partner to the CEO on some of the strategy and people issues, frankly. These other categories that are sort of hard to quantify, but you sort of know it when you see it, a lot of emphasis on transformation experience. And that can be from an analog business to a digital business. It can be a cultural transformation. It can be a geographic transformation. It can be a product transformation. But I think that there is an expectation today that anybody that's jumping into the boardroom is prepared that the company is not going to stand still. And so being uh, forward-looking And increasingly, I think boards looking for people who are maybe one step ahead of where their strategy is today. So can bring that that view from up ahead of the road of, hey, your business is already going through this disruption. Here's what's next, because most boards are planning, you know, five and 10 years out. I would say also, you know, greater emphasis than ever on payments and platforms greater emphasis than ever on uh, ESG issues, which I'm surprised we're just getting to now. It's something that our European colleagues are quite a bit ahead of us on. Every board knows they need to address. Very few have environmental committees set up on their boards. Very few have, at least in the last few years, actually appointed what I would describe as sort of the environmentally friendly director. But I think there's some things that have occurred over the past few months in terms of activism that I think suggest that more and more boards are going to make sure that whether they outsource it as a consultant or they have a a resident director, you know, the dirtier industries, I think probably will have to have a more visible presence of that environmentally 
friendly director, but I think every board is going to have to answer to their institutional investors and their shareholders, and frankly, their stakeholders and employees, that they are not standing still on this issue, and they're going to get to net zero, and they're going to evolve their culture to be more inclusive, and they're going to have a more you know formal and more transparent governance model. You know, ESG uh, transformation, I would say risk, cybersecurity, and and some of those other things are actually is probably far back as ESG is in terms of the evolution of where you might expect it to be versus where it is. I would say the overarching theme reason probably we're talking is that it's women and underrepresented minorities. And in particular, you know, I think women have had the lion's share of requests over the last, you know, five years anyway. You trade off a little bit for some things over others. If you can get a female out of a payments industry who understands cybersecurity, but hasn't been a CEO or CFO, but has been the right hand to the CEO and has attended board meetings and all the rest, you can get comfortable making that sort of a trade-off. So those are some of the themes that we're seeing. Has COVID changed anything in terms of what companies are looking for or just how they've done the search in the last year and a half? The way they've done the search for sure, because you're making selections on folks that in almost every case I'm aware of, you haven't met. It's a really big deal for boards. I mean, these are very process-oriented recruitment exercises where you're typically having it start off led by the chair of the board or chair of the nominating governance committee. They meet the person over a couple of meetings in person, the CEO meets them, and then you know they may invite the other members of the board to have a coffee with them. And so for this to you know be happening when there's no ability to actually meet, especially when there's such an, uh, an emphasis on the EQ and style and fit and culture, it's been really hard for boards. But I think after, if I you know loosely would categorize it this way, March to June board of 2020, boards kind of hunkered down and stayed still and were just managing the crisis day to day and put on hold any new recruit. I would say sort of towards the fall of 20, we started to see boards, okay, we're, we're ready now. This is the right time for us to start the process. But hey, what is that process going to look like? And, and how, you know, we did some coaching on this too. You know, how do we build a process that everyone feels like they have a touch point, but we can also really get to know someone? So let me ask you what could be a more controversial topic, which is how do you feel about quotas for boards? So I'm in the camp that if the institutions don't do anything about it, it's not going to get done. I believe the talent is there. And if a company's doing it to satisfy a quota, I have a lot of confidence in my sisters that they show up, they do their work, and they're going to have impact. So if that voice convinces everybody else in the room that, hey, this wasn't so bad, she was actually pretty great, then they get a second voice and a third voice and a fourth voice and parody at some point down the road. You know, you have to start somewhere. And in general, I don't like quotas for quotas sake, but I really do feel like we're in a place where the talent and depth is there that those people aren't going to just be the window dressing. Even if the board, I hate to say this, but even if the board's doing it for window dressing, they're going to get some, my feeling is they're going to get mileage out of those directors and see the value of the diverse voices. So many folks in our audience are entrepreneurs and business owners. They might be establishing their own boards you know, what guidance would you give to them in terms of how to think about their own board composition and getting started? I think the first thing is making sure that the time is really right for you to set up a governance model. It's easy as you start to see some success to think, oh, great, we're ready for a board. A board takes is cost and management and transparency that you have to be sure you're prepared to take on. And we've coached or counseled, advised some extremely early stage businesses who hadn't really thought about, oh, wow, like, well, we don't even have a CFO or a general counsel yet. So how does this work? (laughs) You know, so thinking through whether maybe you want to hire some advisors is really what you need, not a full board of directors. And then if and when you're, you're confident that the time is right, making sure you're building a governance model that builds 
builds the kind of output you're looking for, which is, are you looking for somebody who's going to vote? Or are you looking for somebody who's going to give you advice? And it's really still your business, making sure that how you pay and incent those other directors or advisors are both in your best interest and in the best interest of your constituents or your stakeholders. And then when you're really serious about building a board, being incredibly intentional about it, build a a visual, which is, okay, we want five seats for starters. We're going to have this private equity or this venture investor. They have two seats that leaves me. And then, okay, we've got two seats left. How do we want to use those? What's the skills matrix? What's the gap analysis? What are we solving for? Do we have the voice of the customer? Do we have somebody who's going to bring us kind of capital markets expertise or credibility? Do we have somebody who has emerging markets experience? Whatever it is that you don't have, but you know that you as a business are evolving towards, I think it's critical that you're always thinking about that composition and does that seat solve for that. And then if if I'm being honest, I think making sure that you activate uh, the broadest network you can to make sure it's also diverse. Whether you're publicly facing or not, I really believe that leads to better business decisions. And there's no better place and time to do it than when you're starting your board for the very first time. One, it sends a message to a market when you maybe are a public company that you've always taken that really seriously and it's authentic to your brand and your culture. But I also think you're going to get better discourse, better debate, better decision making out of it. So those would be a few things that I would say if you're starting your governance path, do that early and often, (laughs) you know, always come back to that and stress test it and make sure you're still on the right path with that. So end us on a note of optimism. What do you envision for the future of director advisory services? Where would you like to go and how will you measure your success? Well, I mean, the sky's the limit. I think there's just so much we can do in terms of serving our clients on governance topics and talent. I would like to see this continue to grow internationally. We've just hired a woman in London to to grow this in EMEA, and she's terrific. And I think that will be a really value add to the brand and its growth. I measure on impact. It's not so much about the numbers. It's really about the goodwill and the relationships we get to build every day by talking to candidates and clients on these topics. And if I were to say, you know, 10 years from now, we've placed, we only get to 100 in five years. Let's just imagine, I can't imagine that, but let's just say that, you know, it's, it's, it's low number. I know that the placements are a very small measurement of the impact that we're having in, in our clients. But what's more meaningful to me is the quality of advice, the quality of the experience that both our candidates and our clients have by working with us. And I know that they are better and the process is better. And they're, whether they choose a JP Morgan director advisory services candidate or not, I know their process is better for having participated, uh, having had us participate in it. So I'm super encouraged by what I see in director advisory services. I'm really encouraged by what I'm seeing in the conversations we have with clients every day on these topics. And for those who are listening to this, who want to be directors, keep pushing for for that exposure. We need more of you to raise your hands and jump in the pool. So, you know, again, I think this is an extremely exciting time on governance and for the talent that's watching it. Well, thank you, Rebecca. It's such a pleasure to work with you and your team to really identify diverse women who could be board candidates. It's something, it's a passion we both share and I know the future looks bright for that. So thank you for all your insights. It's been great to talk to you. Oh, Sam, this was fun. Thank you so much for reaching out. And I know we have these conversations all the time. It's nice to do it on the record. So we'll keep pushing our personal passion and, and thanks for all the support and sponsorship that you and Women on the Move do for women and for director advisory services. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Rebecca Thornton. We talk so much about the importance of networking on this podcast and so much of Rebecca's advice comes back to that critical piece, 
If you're ready for board service, I recommend you look into the resources that Rebecca shared, which you can find in the episode description. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.